Uh, we're jumping all over the shop a little bit today, as you can see, but we'll start um, in Leviticus chapter 25. We'll just read the first seven verses there before moving on. The Lord said to Moses on Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields and oh, sorry, I just moved. For six years sow your fields and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath of rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your manservant and maidservant, and the hired worker and temporary resident who live among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals in your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. All right, and we'll go to... Uh, 26, 40 to 45. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies... Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my lords and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies... I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord their God, but for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors who I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. And now we'll go to 27 uh, verses 1 to 8. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to dedicate persons to the Lord by giving equivalent values, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. And if it is a female, set her value at 30 shekels. If it is a person between the ages of 5 and 20, set the value of a male at 20 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. If it is a person between one month and five years, set the value of a male at five shekels of silver and that of a female at three shekels of silver. If it is a person 60 years old or more, set the value of a male at 15 shekels and a female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, he is to present the person to the priest who will set the value for him according to what the man making the vow can afford. Thank you, and uh, good morning, everyone. In case uh, we haven't met, my name's Ben. 
I uh, pastor our evening congregation, but I have the great joy and privilege of uh, getting to come here fairly regularly to open the Word of God, which I'm going to do with us this morning. Uh, the reason for the, uh, uh, the higgledy-piggledies, we're actually, this is our final sermon in the series on the book of Leviticus. Uh, we preach systematically through Scripture because all of Scripture is God's Word, and uh, it makes sense that if He's given it to us, we should uh, consider it. We don't skip over things just because we don't like them or they're difficult or anything like that. Uh, but we're doing three chapters, 25, 26, 27, and that's quite a lot. So I've had three Bible readings here uh, just to give you a taste of what's in each one. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open at uh, Leviticus 25. I'll lead us in prayer and uh, then we'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, you've spoken finally through him and that you speak to us about him in your word and in your word in Leviticus. Please uh, help us this morning to set aside any hindrances and distractions uh, so that we can uh, learn from your word and remain faithful to it and be uh, uh, further on in our growth in the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The New Testament very often speaks of Christians as people who have come to share in an inheritance. You don't talk about that much as Christians, but it's all over the New Testament. Christians have an inheritance that was once upon a time promised to God's people Israel, but now is available to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul would say of all Christians that God our Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people, that is, uh, saved Israel, in the kingdom of light, Colossians 1.12. When he gave a farewell speech to some church elders from Ephesus, Paul said, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Indeed, Paul wants Christians, and he says he wants us, to learn about this inheritance. He says in a letter to an open audience, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And what is that? Well, it's the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, when I think of inheritance, I think of the money and possessions that uh, parents leave behind to the, their children once they die. In my case, even though both my parents happen to be medical professionals, for a bunch of complex reasons that I won't go into, I stand to get nothing or next to nothing. So it's not really exciting or interesting for me to think about an inheritance. But when the Bible speaks of Christian inheritance... It's not to do with worldly goods, and it's presented as being very important and very exciting. So, what is the biblical inheritance that Christians have come into? Today, we learn from the final big three chapters of Leviticus, and as we learn from them, uh, we're enabled to find out what the biblical inheritance of Christians is. First of all, 
The inheritance Christians enjoy has something to do with the land that God promised to his ancient people Israel. That is the land that most importantly God himself came to live in, God's dwelling place. And because God lived in that land, the land itself needed to reflect the character of the God who came to live there, just as the people needed to reflect his character as we've seen throughout our series in Leviticus. In other words, you might say the land had to be kept holy, it had to be kept like God. How would the land of Israel reflects the character of God and therefore be kept holy. Well, that's what we get in chapter 25. I read again from verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops, but in the seventh year the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest. See, the God who created the world rested on the seventh day and enjoyed his good creation. So unlike the land of any of the surrounding nations, the promised land that God, the true and living God, gave to Israel was to also observe a Sabbath rest, as God did. But God is not only creator, he's also ruler, he rules with justice and mercy. And so the land itself would also somehow need to express his his rule in terms of his justice and mercy. How would this happen? Well, it'll happen in lots of ways, some of which we've already seen, but if you recall, God would divide up the land so that each of the 12 tribes of Israel had a specific allotment. They each had their own patch. Through trading of land and property, those allotments would shift over time. But to ensure that each tribe ultimately kept its fair share, God gave what I call a mega-Sabbath, a year of jubilee after every seven Sabbath years, after every 49th year. And in that jubilee year, the land sales would revert back to how God originally set it up for the tribes. So verse 23 of chapter 25, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Skip to 25. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and Uh, sell some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there's no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it, then they can go back to their own property. But if they do not acquire the means to repay what was sold will remain the year of the Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee, and they can go back to their property. You see, this will demonstrate very clearly that God is the one who owns this land and he rules it in justice, with fairness, and in mercy in that he gave it to them. And this, in addition to the other laws that we've already seen about not harvesting the fields a second time or not going to the edges so that the poor can glean, would demonstrate the character of God in this land. The thing that makes God separate from all other gods, would be demonstrated by the way the land is used. That God is creator who enjoyed his creator on the Sabbath, that God is ruler who is also just and merciful, well, his land would reflect that. It would have Sabbath, it would have a just and fair ruling over all the tribes in terms of their allotment being maintained. You might say, by way of broad summary, and given the the length, I am going to have to do a number of broad summaries this morning, 
that the dwelling place of God must be kept holy, that he's demonstrating his authority, his mercy and his justice. And as long as that was the case, God's people who were living in God's dwelling place would enjoy the richest of blessing. It'll be like Adam and Eve again, living in the garden, that peaceful garden where God himself would walk among them. They would be fruitful and multiply as he had commanded them to do, living in joyful obedience to their life-giving creator. But if they should compromise the holiness of God's dwelling place, they would deservingly suffer punishment and eventually banishment, just as Adam and Eve did. So both the covenant blessings and the covenant curses are then spelt out for Israel clearly in the next chapter. After commanding Israel to maintain the holiness of God's land by rejecting idols and by keeping his Sabbaths, from verse 3 onwards, God spells out the incredible blessings that will come to his people. Verse 3, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, the ground will yield its crops, the trees their fruit, your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting. You will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. Skip to verse 9. I will look on you with favour and will make you fruitful and increase your numbers. You can hear Genesis in there, can't you? And I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you'll have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you as God did in the beginning and be your God and you will be my people. Here is the picture of untold blessing of those who would figuratively ascend the mountain of the Lord to enjoy his life-giving presence. That feeling you get after you've worked a really long day and you've overcome some difficult problems and you sort of get home and you sit on the couch and just for that moment everything is exactly as it should be, that's the feeling we should get with what's presented to us here. But of course... There is another, much bigger half, half, three quarters, to chapter 26. I'm not much of a cook, I don't cook much, but even I know the joy of using a razor-sharp knife when you're cutting meat and veggies. It's just so much better, right, to have it super sharp. But of course, the great value in having the super sharp knife is matched by the danger, the increased risk of harm should something go wrong. The nuclear power plant, much greater yield of power for raw material, but it comes at the cost of producing far more damage should things go wrong. Well, so it is with the sheer goodness of living in God's holy dwelling place. If that gets corrupted, then the results will be as bad as what living with him is good. If the Israelites corrupt the holiness of God's dwelling place, if they, you know, stuff his land, well... Verse 16, I will do this to you. I'll bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. And thankfully, that should be enough and and God's people Israel would then repent and uh, all would be well again. But if for some bizarre, stupid, crazy, unthinkable reason they didn't repent and they continued in rejecting God's rule, well then, verse 19, I'll break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron, the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops nor the trees of your land their fruit. Well, 
of course that would be enough, definitely, and they would repent and they would turn back to God and everything would be... But if the most crazy, unthinkable, bizarre thing happened and they didn't repent, well, verse 22, I'll send wild animals against you and they'll rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. Well, there's no question that would definitely be enough and they will certainly repent and they will go back to dwelling with God if for some unthinkable purely hypothetical situation they still somehow rejected God or verse 26 when I cut off your supply of bread 10 women will be able to bake your bread in one oven they'll dole out bread by weight you will eat but you will not be satisfied notice God is still merciful even in the way he punishes sin and rebellion His covenant blessings, they're all given in one big chunk. But the covenant cursings are spelt out progressively in the hope that after each bit of punishment, there will be repentance. But if, even after all this, Israel continue in their high-handed rebellion, they continue to reject God's loving rule, then they will ultimately, as we saw a few weeks ago, be vomited out of God's holy land. Verse 32, I myself will lay waste to the land, to the dwelling place of himself, so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I'll scatter you among the nations, will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. If, and sadly I'm going to have to say, when this all happens, because it does happen, Even then, God's outpouring of righteous judgment in his great mercy will end up being the very thing that makes restoration possible. I'll say that again. Even then, if Israelites continually rebel and endure all the punishments down to the very bottom and get booted out of God's land, even then, as he's poured out his judgment, in his mercy, that very outpouring of judgment will be the thing that makes restoration possible. If there's only one clear detail you get from this whole text, let it be the following section from verse 34. Then, that is then after you've rebelled and I've booted you out of the land, then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you're in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbaths you lived in it. In other words, when I pour out my anger, my wrath, the righteous requirements for my dwelling place will by that process be upheld. Even the way God pours out his righteous anger at the very height of Israel's complete high-handed rebellion against him will make it possible for his righteous requirements of a holy dwelling place to be fulfilled. To broadly summarise chapter 26, we'd be right to say that if God's dwelling place is corrupted, he will cast out his people. Yet that punishment will itself make restoration possible. Now, how would the surviving Israelites get to be restored back into God's life-giving Uh, presence in his holy dwelling place we learn about that from verse 40 
But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them, they will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor themselves to destroy them completely. After God pours out his righteous wrath, he will yet make restoration possible for those who repent. And with that, we come to what I call the official end of the book of Leviticus. Of course, it's not the end. There's a whole chapter 27, right? That's the inspired word of God. It's there and it's right where it should be. But if we call Leviticus law literature, which we should, it's right to do, then I think it's fair to say that God deliberately makes sure that you and I get the distinct impression that once his exiled people are restored to his land, that their fellowship with him then would somehow go beyond what is seemingly available in his covenant law. Let me show you what I mean by that. The last verse in chapter 26 is about as conclusive and final as you can possibly get in the Torah. Verse 46, these are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. Full stop, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God, amen. That's an end. But then there's something like an appendix, an extra word of God that hints at the notion that beyond his written law and after his people have been exiled and restored to his holy dwelling place, that there'll be a more satisfying fellowship with him. The way this is expressed is through free vows of dedication to the Lord that anyone of any age male or female, at any time for an unspecified period can make. Presumably, someone who, uh, someone especially dedicated to the Lord for, for some amount of time would serve in the work of the tabernacle in the outer court. But instead of doing that work, because, hey, there's only so many people you can physically fit in the outer court, a way you could express your dedication to the Lord is by paying a certain amount of money or goods that will be roughly equivalent to the amount of work he would have done in his service. And so we read from verse 2, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between the ages of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. For a female, set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the ages of 5 and 20, set the value of a male at 20 shekels, of a female at 10 shekels, etc. And it goes on. Now, I should point out here that the value is determined purely by utility and not by personhood. Uh, given that the work is physical, a male will generally accomplish more than a female. A person in their prime will accomplish more than a person uh, older than 60. The fact that the teenager slaving away at Macca's gets paid a lower hourly rate than a 30-year-old does doesn't indicate that they're somehow lesser of a person. 
It's purely a reflection of the cold, hard economic reality based on pragmatic productivity. In some ways, you're better off as a female or as an older person because you can be dedicated to the Lord for less. But that said, God makes sure it's actually open to anyone and everyone by giving a provision for those who aren't able to pay the set amounts. Verse 8, if anyone making the vows too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. They'll size it up on a case-by-case basis. The rest of chapter 27 spells out the way other things, such as animals and houses, can also be given over freely in the service of the Lord. So the general picture you're getting here is very unrestrained dedication to serving the Lord. The kind of fellowship that really you would see in a large family, in their use of of property and goods and and serving one another. The reason the husband will bring home flowers or chocolates for his wife when there's no special occasion is simply because he wants to freely show his love to his wife. And he can, simply because she's his wife. Stacey and I, we make the rules about how much screen time our kids get on certain days. But Our relationship to our kids is not ultimately governed by those rules. I mean, if I want, I can surprise my kids by giving them an extra hour than what I've allowed. We're free to go beyond the rules because of our relationship, not breaking the rules, but going beyond them. Again, by way of very general summary, we'd be right to say that God's people, and I think in this context it's his restored people after he's poured out his wrath, will enjoy fellowship beyond the law with God and with one another. Now, I wonder if when we consider all these things together, we see that Leviticus ends with the gospel. Leviticus ends with the gospel of God. You see, the true dwelling place of God, the place where all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, Colossians 1, the place in which God tabernacled among us, John 1.14, is of course Jesus. And Jesus was only ever always perfectly holy, demonstrating God's authority, God's mercy, God's justice, God's rule, the promised land actually prefigures Jesus himself. And the Israelites could have known that, really. Psalm 90, verse 1, Lord God, you have been our dwelling place for all eternity. And yet, by his own choice, Jesus took upon himself all the sinfulness of humanity. God's dwelling place was, in effect, corrupted, stained, defiled, Not by Jesus, who was sinless, but by him taking on the corruption of humanity as he hung there on the cross. Jesus was therefore punished as the people of God. He endured the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3. Yet in God's great mercy, God's dwelling place, the body of Jesus, would then rest. It would rest in the tomb after he'd been forsaken. Therefore, the punishment he endured on behalf of God's people meant that God's dwelling place could be restored. 
and repentant sinners brought back into it. And yes, I'm talking of the resurrection of Christ. As a result, those who recognise their need to have sin paid for and who turn and trust in Jesus are restored to a fellowship with God that is deeper and more satisfying than the bare written law could ever provide. Historically, the promised land to which Jews would one day be restored after their exile would also become the home of people from many nations. God's restoration would now open the doors to those who are beyond the law, if you like. The prophet Zechariah gives a great visual of this reality when he says in those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. When you go back to your dwelling place for a better relationship, we want to be in on it too, say the nations. The inheritance of Israel was the holy dwelling place of God that they would enter with people from other nations after the outpouring of his wrath. It's then that they would enjoy satisfying fellowship with him and with one another, making their free vows of dedication as an expression of that great fellowship. Of course, what ancient Israel we yet to discover is that the true dwelling place of God is not the promised land, but Jesus Christ himself, who the promised land is pointing to. And as at one time the people might have flocked to the earthly Jerusalem, so now we're told in the New Testament that the true worshippers in spirit and truth worship neither on the mountain of Jerusalem nor on the mountain of Gerizim, but they are people situated anywhere and everywhere, including down under, who were described as being those who worshipped simply in Christ. It's for that reason that the real inheritance of Israel, which Gentiles, nations can now enjoy, is one kept in heaven which can never perish, spoil or fade. It's as if it's saying that our real inheritance is Christ himself. If we are in Christ then God has brought us into his true dwelling place where we enjoy all his covenant blessings, including eternal life, and where our joyful fellowship goes beyond what was available in the law. And so by way of implications, the first and most obvious uh, thing to ask is, have you, figuratively speaking, returned with Israel? It's just one of the many biblical ways of saying, have you turned away from what this sinful world can offer and put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, such that you enjoy the inheritance of living in God's presence both now and for all eternity. If not, you need to get your act together really quick before God puts his last will and testament into complete effect and it will be too late for anyone else to be restored, you'll be left out of the inheritance. If you have received the inheritance of living in God's dwelling place, that is your part of the body of Christ, first of all, one of the ways you'll know that to be the case is that you have a very, very high priority of regularly gathering with that body, church, is one of the things that will be high on your priority list 
Sunday, you go to church. That's what you will do. If that's you, then make sure you don't squander your inheritance by making the kinds of choices that get you more and more invested in the things of this fallen world. The great Australian dream, so-called, of owning your own home can easily become a hindrance that entangles and sees people give up on running the race that God's marked out for us. I know because I've seen it happen. The desire for more wealth at the expense of longer working hours can easily make us people who are invested in this world but who are not rich toward God. I know because I've seen it happen. Unless it becomes a sought-after antique, a car is something that only ever depreciates in value. How fancy do our cars really need to be? Get the cheaper one, use leftover money to give to the poor or support gospel work. Finally, I suspect this will not be an issue for all of us, but perhaps it could be for some. It's so sad that there are huge swathes of biblical teaching that still have a special place for the physical land of Israel today. On account of poor or no biblical theology in the past and today, many Christians have come up with this notion that the establishment of the nation-state of Israel, 1948, was a fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy directly. And the political situation in modern-day Israel is somehow indicative of the nearness of the return of Jesus. It's biblically wrong and it takes the focus away from the true dwelling place of God that people need to be concerned about, namely Jesus. The New Testament says either nothing or next to nothing about the physical land of Israel today and it asserts that God dwells not in the earthly Jerusalem, which figuratively is in slavery, but in the heavenly Jerusalem where Christ is seated and where we've been raised up. To think that there is still Old Testament prophecy awaiting fulfilment through modern historic events rather than in the person and work of Jesus is just plain unbiblical. As glad as I am personally that there's a modern-day nation-state of Israel, I mean, I'm Jewish, I think that's great that there's an Israel, a homeland for the Jews. To think that the status of modern-day Israel is some kind of bearing on God's salvation economy is to move away from the direction of the New Testament, whereby the whole point is that Jews, along with chosen Gentiles, come to Christ, come to a mountain that cannot be touched, Hebrews 12. You might like to ask me questions about that later on. But for now, the book of Leviticus presents to us the gospel of Jesus. God's true dwelling place, his temple, Jesus, was corrupted, taking the sin of Israel and the world upon himself, and he was therefore punished, enduring the full fury of God's righteous anger. But after God's dwelling place had rest, he became inhabitable, as exiled Israelites could return to God's dwelling place and so now exiled sinners from anywhere and everywhere can return from being in sin to being in Christ. Let us enjoy our free fellowship with God, living lives dedicated to Him and making sure we don't squander our eternal inheritance by getting too caught up with the things of this idolatrous world.
Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for that glorious inheritance that's kept in heaven for us that can never perish, spoil or fade, that is ours for all eternity. We thank you for teaching us about it through the experience of Israel and for the laws pertaining to the promised land. Uh, Heavenly Father, please help us not to squander this wonderful inheritance by getting too caught up with the things of this fallen and failing world. And Father, for any among us or known to us who have yet to receive the inheritance, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd grant them repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus so that they could stand firm both now and on the last day. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.